And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, May 4th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how volunteers could help local governments deal with cyber attacks. Plus, it might be frozen, but the Arctic is not locked down yet. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, preventing harassment in the federal workplace starts with agency leadership. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is emphasizing that idea, along with a host of other recommendations for agencies to strengthen their anti-harassment policies. The new EEOC guidance updates a study from several years ago, this time taking into account changes from the pandemic. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from the commission's attorney advisor, Marquis Willoughby. It serves as an extension or complement to the EOC's 2016 Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace, which is a bipartisan report from the commission's co-chairs. In 2017, the EOC issued a technical assistance document entitled Promising Practices for Preventing Harassment. That contains practices within core principles found in the Select Task Force report to assist all employers in preventing and addressing harassment. And so this new technical assistance document builds on that 2017 technical assistance document by focusing on promising practices for preventing and addressing harassment, specifically in the federal civilian workforce. It also contains practices that are required by EEO uh, Management Directive 715 or MD 715, uh, which is very specific to federal employees, whereas the previous document was a general document for employers. So we did not have the specific requirements tailored to the federal uh, civilian workforce. It also contains, in addition to those requirements from MD 715, it contains a non-exhaustive list of additional promising practices that we're recommending uh, by the EOC. Although federal agencies aren't required to adopt the additional recommended practices, they're strongly urged to consider adoption of those practices to improve their anti-harassment programs, uh, to prevent workplace harassment, and generally to have more effective compliance with the laws. What are some of the top recommendations that you have for agencies? It's hard to pick the top, but the favorites like kids, but I think there's some here that particularly stand out. The promising practice that agencies should ensure that they have an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from its EEO program with neutral staff who are responsible for promptly, thorough, and impartially investigating harassment allegations. And ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, the agency must ensure they take immediate and appropriate corrective action. That's really pivotal. That's why we have anti-harassment programs, is to promptly investigate the harassment in a thorough and impartial way, but also if harassment is found to occur, to take the appropriate immediate corrective action to make sure it does not recur. Another uh, practice that we'd like to highlight is that we recommend that agency heads issue and post an annual anti-harassment policy statement signed by the agency head, really showing that leadership is on board with anti-harassment efforts. And it should explain the type of conduct that's prohibited, how to report that harassment, and 
any consequences and accountability for engaging in harassment or retaliation. Another practice is uh, addressing things such as bullying, intimidation, and stalking, uh, what it is, and the fact that it will not be tolerated by the agency. Because of the growth in remote and teleworking in the federal sector, we know that uh, agencies should inform supervisors and managers about how to manage or how to monitor, rather, online harassment, including harassment on a virtual platform. Another thing, we recommend that agencies adopt electronic tracking systems to analyze where the problem areas are and to also evaluate whether or not their anti-harassment programs are effective in preventing and addressing harassment. And then finally, another practice is that we advise agencies to consider trauma-informed training for all personnel who may receive or respond to allegations of harassment or or harassing conduct. Now, this is especially important for investigators or for anyone who is receiving these reports of harassment to be culturally competent to handle people who may have experienced trauma. I want to dive in on a couple different areas that you just touched on. So the first one being, you said that agency heads should be essentially responsible for posting an anti-harassment document or policy Can you talk a little bit more about the role of leadership in implementing these policies and why it's important to kind of set that standard? Leadership plays a pivotal role in preventing and correcting harassment. EEOC's Management Directive 715 makes it clear that a model EEO program hinges on demonstrated commitment from agency leadership which involves having the agency head clearly communicating to employees, including supervisors and managers, about the agency's commitment to preventing and correcting workplace harassment. To do this, leaders must ensure the agency has an anti-harassment program that's separate and distinct from the EEO program, and that the program has neutral staff outside of the entity involved in the allegations who are dedicated and trained to promptly, thoroughly, and impartially investigate allegations of harassment, and ultimately, if there's a finding of harassment, ensure that type of immediate and appropriate corrective action that will ensure the harassment does not recur. Leaders must also ensure that the agency has sufficient funding for the anti-harassment programs, including you know, personnel, any other type of resources necessary to prevent harassment and retaliation. And also leaders have to ensure that investigations of harassment begin promptly, which is defined by MD715 as within 10 calendar days, at least. Sometimes it has to begin well before 10 days, but at the very least, it has to begin within 10 calendar days of receipt of harassment allegations. Another thing that you touched on that I found pretty interesting was you talked about the role of online harassment Obviously, agencies have seen a major increase in telework and remote work. Have you seen that have an effect on the way that harassment exists in the federal workspace? And did that shape at all the way that you wrote or created this guidance? Remote work and telework can change the platform of harassment. And our policies and our programs should be specific about 
the different ways that harassment can manifest in a particular workplace or particular agency. Employees and supervisors can be subjected to harassment through online or virtual platforms while working, just as they can be if they're actually in the physical office. And so in recognition that remote work and telework have become such a huge, huge component of the federal workplace, this document recommends that anti-harassment policies and training incorporate discussions about how the agency's anti-harassment policy may be violated through work-related conduct that occurs on virtual or online platforms, including on social media. Additionally, this document notes agencies should clearly explain that the use of agency-issued devices such as laptops or cell phones to engage in online harassment and abuse will not be tolerated. Uh, also, you can you know, have such harassment through email, of course, through text messaging, um, any other you know, electronic device. We also recommended that training address any changes to the reporting or investigation process as a result of increased remote or virtual work. And if you are an agency who looks at this guidance, puts some of the practices into place if you haven't already, are there ways to measure change over time and how effective the policies are? MD-715 contains several requirements for agency anti-harassment programs, including a requirement for anti-harassment policies that comply with EEOC standards. We have an MD-17 about uh, the requirement about beginning investigations in a prompt manner, which is within 10 calendar days of, of receiving the report. We have the requirement that an anti-harassment program must be separate and distinct from the EEO process or program. That's very important. There's a requirement that agencies have policies that are designed to address harassment before it become severe or pervasive, or it escalates to the level of unlawful harassment. That is something that we emphasize. That's what, you know, these practices are, are largely designed to prevent unwelcome conduct from escalating to becoming severe or pervasive. And also there's within MD-715 a requirement that agencies establish a firewall between their anti-harassment coordinator and program and the EEO director. We recognize there may be a conflict of interest between these two programs, so they should be separate and there should be a firewall to make sure there's not a conflict of interest. Now, agencies have to report on these measures to the EEOC on an annual basis. There's more of this to the MD-17 than anti-harassment uh, programs, but they are an integral part of what they have to report on each year. And failure to meet these requirements are considered deficiencies in EEO programs that must be corrected. And we are here at the EEOC to partner with the agency to show meaningful progress if they are deficient in their anti-harassment programs. And agencies just generally should continuously assess their anti-harassment programs to ensure that they are effective at preventing and correcting harassment. There should be periodic evaluation of trends and harassment complaints, which requires a tracking system, taking in data about your an agency's response to harassment so that you can identify strategies to prevent and correct any harassment that may be occurring in the workplace and also just generally to improve your anti-harassment programs and policies. For me, one question that comes up here is agency resources, and that's something that you mentioned early on, to make sure that an agency has the resources set aside to put towards this. Do you see 
based on the size or resources that an agency has, you know, a really big department maybe has more resources to contribute to this. Do you see smaller agencies struggling to put all of this into effect more than large ones? There can be more of a struggle in some smaller agencies, but I think even larger agencies can, can struggle if they don't make correcting harassment a priority. And leadership has to catch that vision and be committed to ensuring that harassment does not occur through its anti-harassment programs, policies, and training. And so resources are important towards the that main goal of preventing and correcting harassment there has to be ongoing assessment of what the program the anti-harassment program needs are for accomplishing this this pivotal goal you know it can depend from agency to agency size can be a factor but i don't see that as being a leading factor there is a lot on paper here showing that leadership should post things should measure certain areas about how effective the policy is Is there anything that is maybe less concrete in this guidance here? What factors in workplace culture might contribute to better anti-harassment policies? In the 2016 Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace, it contains sort of an assessment of risk factors for harassment in a particular workplace. And I think agencies should assess their risk factors and see how to mitigate those risk factors and how maybe their anti-harassment program can strategize to prevent harassment with awareness of those risk factors. So I think that's a good tool for doing that. Can you describe a couple of what those risk factors would be? Risk factors include things such as a lack of diversity in the workforce or homogenous workforce, workplaces where some employees do not conform to workplace norms. Sometimes single-sex dominated workplace cultures can have that risk factor. If there are cultural and language differences in the workplaces, uh, the arrival of new employees with different cultures and nationalities may uh, trigger harassment in those situations, power disparities or large or significant power disparities between employees. Sometimes uh, workforces, and we have these in the federal sector, that rely on customer service or clients' uh, satisfaction and interaction, that can expose federal employees to the possibility of harassment in isolated workplaces. Uh, Physically isolated workplaces, we have found, can be ripe for harassment in certain situations. And if you're a federal leader that has more of those risk factors or maybe some of those risk areas are higher, are there specific strategies or ways that they should be trying to correct that beyond the more general recommendations? The EEOC is here to partner with agencies to address any deficiencies or issues that may exist within their uh, agencies with regard to anti-harassment efforts. Uh, But you can also consult social science experts on this topic. There's many resources out there in the workplace context regarding anti-harassment efforts, and EEOC hopefully is, is on speed dial for many of these agencies. EEOC has this new guidance. What are the next steps for the commission? How are you continuing to work on this topic? 
We're continually evaluating uh, agencies' anti-harassment programs, and we provide feedback. We provide technical assistance on an ongoing basis. Agencies reach out to us to help us draft their anti-harassment policies, and ultimately, agencies need to get those policies approved by us. We are continually reviewing anti-harassment programs in all federal civilian uh, agencies, and we're partnering with the agencies uh, with innovative ideas. We're, you know, sometimes a sounding board for agencies' ideas. We can give them feedback on any innovations that they may have in the anti-harassment field, but we also provide training and outreach on the topic of harassment, which is really, really important. Training is one of the areas that we address in this document, and we are continually uh, dialoguing and teaching the federal sector about anti-harassment efforts, and the law is evolving, so there is a need to keep abreast of any developments as well as trends in this area. Marquis Willoughby, attorney advisor at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. You can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, it might be frozen, but the Arctic is not locked down yet. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Coast Guard has long worked to boost its capabilities of operating in the Arctic, an area of increasing importance to national security. Now the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate will fund research aimed at helping other DHS components operate in the Arctic. For details, we turn to the Science and Technology Director of the Office of University Programs, Rebecca Medina. Ms. Medina, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And what's at issue here? We know the Coast Guard is plowing its way through and there's new icebreakers being built and so forth. But what about the rest of DHS? Well, the rest of DHS, as you noted in your introduction, the security posture is changing in the Arctic. As waterways open up, as the landscape changes, there are challenges to others besides the Coast Guard. As the waterways open up, you have new law enforcement mission. So bigger waterways means more fishing. So more illegal fishing comes with that. There becomes a larger mission to monitor those waterways. As communications equipment that is in the Arctic that is important to security, not only for DHS components, but also for the far-flung communities and indigenous populations in the Arctic who rely on them for safety. As the climate and the environment changes, we need to make sure that those kinds of systems are resilient, not only to the geographic environment, but also to the changes in temperature that we're seeing, which are vacillating at much greater rates than we've seen in the past. So all of that equipment needs to be hardened and more resilient to protect all of the U.S. citizens living in the Arctic. And really, those are the types of things that we'd like this new center of excellence to look at. And which components specifically do you think need this capability the most urgently? I can imagine, say, FEMA, if they need to help one of those indigenous populations that are still U.S. citizens in Alaska. But who else? 
So when we put together this notice for funding opportunity that people can apply to, we worked with components across the agency to develop it. So we brought, as you mentioned, FEMA and the Coast Guard to the table. We also brought Customs and Border Protection. We brought CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We brought Headquarters Policy to the table because they have been very active in working across the department to create the department's architecture strategy. So these are all the types of players that we're working with, keeping in mind as the security posture changes, there may also be others that we're interested in working with. And just one detail of the Arctic, because of some melting or warming that has happened, I mean, it's a waterway now as well as an iceway, which means that all sorts of vessels can kind of get through there that maybe 50 years ago could not have. Absolutely. And because of that, not only are components like the Coast Guard having to deal with getting their own ships used to a new waterway, but you see more recreational traffic, you see more commercial traffic, and that means that their mission expands because more people there means more people who can get into trouble. Got it. And you mentioned a center of excellence, which I guess I should have mentioned in the beginning. This is the locus of all of this work and from which these, and we'll get to the funding in a moment, the source of the funding will be the center of excellence. Tell us more about that. Yes. So my office runs a group of centers of excellence for the department. Each of the centers is a consortium of schools who does work in a particular thematic area, in this case, Homeland Security in the Arctic. It's led by an individual school, and that's what this competition is looking to identify. But that lead school is responsible for building a group of universities who will conduct research, in addition to bringing industry, state, local, and community partners to the table, and especially important in the Arctic, the indigenous and tribal representatives, because they have unique sets of challenges that research should be brought to bear to help them with. We're speaking with Rebecca Medina. She's director of the Office of University Programs, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. And this funding then, is it grants? But it's not really a grant program precisely, is it? It it is a financial assistance program. It's a cooperative agreement. It's a little different than a grant, but What we do is we pose a set of research questions. So we're not asking for specific widgets or tools or telling them what to do. We're posing research questions under which this university consortium can conduct research. So we're the guide, but they are setting the roadmap for the research program. And this is open to any academic research center that might have knowledge or skill in this area. Correct. It's open to any U.S.-based accredited university. be interesting to see if someone near, you know, like Florida or the Gulf Coast might want to go up to the Arctic to do some research. But what are some of the questions from Homeland Security's so, standpoint that need to be answered? What are the research topics for the Arctic? So you mentioned, could someone from another region propose? I think that there are lessons we've learned from some of our challenges on the eastern seaboard and hurricanes and flooding that the Arctic communities are soon to be facing. So you're very correct that there may be knowledge from other parts of our country that can be applied to the new challenges in the Arctic. And that's one of the questions we've asked. Are there tools that are currently in place for other 
situations or other scenarios that can be applied to the new challenges in the Arctic as they see flooding in ways they've never seen before. Are there tools that communities and corporations and states on our eastern seaboard use that they could apply? That's one set of questions. We're looking, as I mentioned, at are there hardening tools for communication systems that can be applied? And if these tools don't exist, we're asking the schools to look into, A, what may need to be created, or are there things that we can do to modify things that currently exist to make them easier or make them more substantial for use in the Arctic? Another set of questions that we're asking, and that's very important to my office's mission, is how do you educate not only the current operators on what's happening in the Arctic and how those changes may affect their operations, but how do you start training the next generation of operators to work in that area? We like bringing new voices and new thought leaders to the table. And so this Center of Excellence will also have a set of education programs to bring some of those new people to the table and hopefully excite them enough that they want to continue working sure. in the Homeland Security mission space. So it's not just technology, but also the people factors of working in that environment. I mean, not everyone is Nanook of the North, and there are human factors that really come into play here when you're in that cold environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what are the timelines here? This is a notice of funding opportunity that is now open. What's going on next? So the funding opportunity opened about a week ago, and schools that are interested in applying will have a set period of time to apply. They are able to apply until June 19th. During that time, we will also have a webinar. So if anyone has questions about what goes into applying or has questions about what they're doing, we'll do a webinar on May 9th. And then after the 19th of June, we'll start reviewing the applications that come in and hopefully in the early autumn have a new Center of Excellence lead to announce. I wonder if the University of Alaska will get involved here because, you know, they're kind of on the ground there, so to speak, literally. Yes, they very well could. Rebecca Medina is director of the Office of University Programs, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and encourage any school interested to apply. All right. We'll post this interview along with a link to that information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that three-legged stool of federal retirement might have a fourth leg. But first, how volunteers could help local governments deal with cyber attacks. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. While federal agencies search endlessly to hire people skilled in cybersecurity, local government might have a different way. How about enlisting volunteers to help protect critical infrastructure from cyber attacks? That's the idea behind a detailed set of recommendations from the law firm McDermott, Will & Emery. We get more now from attorney Mark Schreiber. Mr. Schreiber, good to have you with us. Thanks so much. My first question is what would cause a 
big and well-known law firm like MWE to undertake a report on helping state and local and municipal, county, whatever, government with enlisting volunteers in cybersecurity, of all things. We identified a deficit because we know how difficult it is to respond to data breaches and do cyber assessments and try to implement all the terrific steps CISA has alerted us to. So from a number of sources, we became aware that even smaller entities would have even more difficulties in doing this. So we decided to try to canvas the area. We thought it would be pretty simple to identify the nonprofits, state or other entities or universities that are doing this. It turned out to be a major task, in part because things were siloed. Places didn't know about each other, and it took a lot more work than we thought. And interestingly, I mean, at the federal level, they may not accept volunteer help or volunteer or services for no consideration. It's not legal at the federal level, except under very certain circumstances. Is it easier to do from a legal standpoint for, say, I'm a small town and I don't want to be held up for $10 million in Bitcoin from some Russian schnook, and therefore I need some help that I don't have in town, and the local college down the street might be able to help Can they do that? Yeah, there are a number of resources now. At the state level, they may have to jump through some other hoops, but it may be that there's a nonprofit available that will help out or provide volunteer services. And there are some university clinics that are now doing this. So there are a variety of sources out there. The point you raise is a good one. Currently, Trying to do volunteer services or cyber services with a federal government has lots of limitations. And that was part of the reason to look at the other resources or entities out there doing that. But several states on their own have come up with programs. And then, as I mentioned, there are a variety of nonprofits either being formed or that exist that are doing this. And we should point out that the danger at the state, local, municipal level is very real. And we've seen some serious breaches, both for governments at that level and also for nonprofit organizations like healthcare groups. Nobody is immune. It doesn't matter whether you're big or small. The hits keep coming. And we know from our experience how difficult and imposing it is, for example, to respond to a ransomware attack or if it locks up certain data that's critical. And that was part of the concern. How do we better marshal these existing resources? And that got us to some of the basics of how do you even identify what resources are there for cyber volunteering? We're speaking with Mark Schreiber. He's senior counsel with McDermott, Will, and Emery. And so you've developed a framework that has a number of actions that a entity should take to be able to ingest volunteers in cyber. Maybe briefly review what those steps are. Sure. Well, the first item was, where do you go? I mean, if you want to volunteer, where's the platform, the dashboard, the website where you could sign up? And we found that those were essentially missing in the U.S. One of the recommendations the CISA or others was to produce a national website listing all of these resources. A second piece of it was to have a dashboard that connects needy recipients with willing volunteers 
or companies that would be donating services of their employees. So just the matchmaking service needed to be orchestrated and developed more fully. And that may be done on a state-by-state basis, could be done by some nonprofits operating nationally. And as I mentioned, there are a couple of university clinics, MIT, UC Berkeley, that are doing that already with the hope of expanding it further. And then, of course, you got the legal issues. You know, what's the agreement amongst the parties, the volunteers, the recipient entities? What about indemnities or scope of uh, services? The kind of things that when we engage forensic firms, we deal with every day. But it may be that nonprofits or others aren't used to that. Maybe they need a model. So we created a model legal framework or at least model template agreements for that. Interesting. And getting back to that idea of donation of services, even by profit-making organizations, you know, law firms have a pro bono unit usually or devote a certain number of hours per year, I guess, divided among the attorneys to do pro bono. Can you envision where cybersecurity companies that offer services could maybe set aside a certain portion of their workforce for pro bono in the public interest? Precisely so, and a number of large consulting and forensic companies already are doing that or are willing to do it. So a couple of the major forensic companies have donated, they've indicated they'd be willing to do more. But again, where do they go? Where's the hub? How's it all connected? And one of the major incentives to corporate CSR is a platform to make the donations or to allow their employees to volunteer themselves or self-volunteer because they want to do this activity. So it was really an organizational task or structure that we identified that needed more work and coordination. Similarly, like our law firm, this entire cyber volunteer project was a pro bono one. All right. Well, we thank you for that one. And what types of organizations do you feel are most ripe for using volunteer help? Because if you are a, I don't know, mid-sized city, say of forty or 50,000 people, you've also got a contracting operation and possibly even a grant-making operation that might originate with federal funds. You've got to stay out of conflict of interest situations, both for your own people and for the entity that is volunteering the service. So who's eligible? I mean, what are the types of entities best suited to take in volunteer work? Yeah, that's a good question because the range of need is constant and enormous. So how local cities or towns navigate through that process or the procurement process or the limitations is one set of issues. But some hospitals or other regional entities may not be connected with a city government. They may operate on their own or individually. And so those may not be quite as restricted in recipient services. But let's keep in mind what the goal here is. The goal is to better insulate small, rural, and other critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. And there's got to be a way to cut through some of the red tape to do that. The threat actors trying to pull out ransomware extortion demands don't care about your conflicts. They want your money. So 
I'm confident that with enough attention and thought process given to this, there will be structural alternatives to allow cyber volunteering. And a number of the nonprofits are doing this already. So given the range of need, there's got to be a way to restructure or better marshal our resources for cyber volunteering. And how are you promulgating this work, this piece of work with the framework that you have and and the advice for those entities to set up volunteer networks? Well, our recommendations, including holding a national cyber volunteer conference, someone to decide they want to do a national website on this, somebody else to help identify what the appropriate metrics ought to be, somebody or other agencies will pick up the ball, I suspect, because this need is so demanding. Mark Schreiber is Senior Counsel with McDermott, Will & Emery. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview and a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, that three-legged stool of federal retirement might have a fourth leg. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Federal retirement tends to stand like a three-legged stool. You've got your FERS annuity, the Thrift Savings Plan, and Social Security. But a fourth leg could make for an even sturdier retirement. Good old-fashioned savings bonds are another instrument federal employees can invest in for their personal savings. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from retired federal manager and financial counselor Abe Grungold. He started with a little history here. There would be an employee from every agency who was the bond coordinator, and they would pass out the United States Savings Bonds pamphlets that you could obtain in the bank, along with a payroll allotment card. And you could select the amount of the bond that you wanted and how frequent you wanted to receive it. So you could buy a $50 bond or a $1,000 bond. And if you did the 50, you get, you know, 26 bonds, one every pay period. If you did the $1,000 bond, say a $100 bond, you wouldn't get it every 26 pay periods. You would get it once a month because you'd only be contributing $25 or however you wanted to do it. So this was an excellent program that the government offered for employees to do tax-deferred savings before there was a TSP. Then when the TSP was introduced, they continued the program. Unfortunately, technology has now ended that bond drive that they would have every year. And the Treasury wants everyone to have an online account, not to purchase them and to get a paper bond. We would receive them in the mail when you bought them. Or some people actually had them sent to the office. You know, it it ended a one wonderful program because unfortunately what happened was the government put it on the responsibility of the employee and they weren't aware about it because the annual bond drive sort of educated employees and it gave them an opportunity to think about it. So I think that is somewhat lost now. You know, OPM does have that literature there that, you know, you can go in and search out U.S. savings bonds, and it takes you to the area where it says you have to do it through the 
Treasury Direct. And again, it's tax-deferred savings. It was available before there was a TSP. Now that there's a TSP, it's still an excellent investment in addition to your TSP, in addition to your FERS annuity, and it gives you that tax-deferred benefit where you can hold on to it for 30 years. Here I am, 65 years old. I now have a $10,000 savings bond that I purchased for 5000 and it's worth 16000 and I have to pay the taxes now when I cash it in, not you know, years ago when, when I was trying to grow it. So it does provide an excellent tax deferred investment, even today for employees. You know, if that is the case, and this can be a valuable tool for federal employees, can you explain yeah. more how that can combine with other aspects of retirement for federal employees? Today, federal employees have a three-legged stool for their retirement. They have their FERS annuity, they have their thrift savings plan, and they have Social Security. It's called the three-legged stool. But if you have personal savings, such as the United States savings bonds, that provides a fourth leg to the stool, a more secure retirement. Because let's say you don't receive that FERS annuity because you didn't put in enough years of federal service. So now you really only have three legs to your school. You have your TSP, you have your Social Security, and you have your savings bonds. It's just another important investment vehicle for you to plan for your retirement. You should always be thinking about saving for retirement. And certainly the government will give you the annuity. You will get the Social Security. If you invest properly and contribute, you'll have your thrift savings plan. And the savings bonds gives you an opportunity for an emergency investment during your life, during your career, that maybe something comes up like, you know, the rainy day fund. This is your rainy day investment. And they're good for 30 years. The E-bonds earn 2.1% now, and the I-bonds earn 6.89% presently. So you can save it for 30 years until they reach maturity and then cash them out when you're in retirement and you're in a lower tax bracket and maybe uh, the money will become very necessary for you to maybe pay for your grandchildren's college fund or maybe you want to go on a trip or buy a motorcycle, whatever you want to do in retirement, that money will come in handy. And I purchased them my entire federal career. And now that that I am retired, I have many that are coming to maturity and they're coming in at the right time for me to use them. Is there a right time to purchase a bond? You said that you've purchased them throughout your career. Is there you know, one time that might be better than another to, to start doing this? I think it's very important to start buying them early in your life because, you know, like everything, you get in the habit of doing it. You can start off small buying the $50 savings bond or the $100 savings bond and then work your way up. And then if you do it consistently, you will be amazed how much this account can grow over time. You know, I'm planning for my daughter's wedding for the, the day she was born. I plan to repair my roof 
the first day I bought my home. I know these expenses may come down the road, and it's a great way to save. It's a great way to defer uh, paying taxes on your income, and it's really the the rainy day fund, the nest egg, and you really should get in the habit of doing it periodically. It will become second nature to you when you do that. And I would always buy a savings bond, usually at the end of the year, when I knew I had some extra money. Sometimes I purchased it with my tax refund. I would get a sizable tax refund, and I would take that tax refund and immediately use it to purchase a savings bond. And if you do that alone, that alone with your tax refund, if you're fortunate to get that tax refund, I think you will be amazed over 30 years how much you can save and how much it will build up. You touched a little bit on this earlier, but there are, of course, different types of bonds available. Can you tell me a little bit more about what are maybe some of the benefits of each different type of bond and how much money are we really talking about here that you could come out at the other end with? There are two major types of savings bonds, the EE bond, which presently earned 2.1%, and then there are the I bonds. Now, the the I-bonds earn 6.89%. Now, these interest rates change every six months. The E-bonds, you can purchase an unlimited amount of E-bonds. The I-bonds presently, you can only purchase $10,000 worth of I-bonds a year. When you buy them and you hang on to them, I had a client and they basically, this is all they purchased. They didn't invest in the stock market. They didn't invest anywhere, but they purchased savings bonds. And they accumulated almost $700,000 in savings bonds just by purchasing $1,000 savings bonds. And then during their lifetime, those bonds actually matured. And $1,000 savings bonds can turn into Ten or $15,000 at maturity, depending on the interest rate over the life of that bond. So they took their matured savings bonds and bought bigger savings bonds over time. So it wasn't the $1,000 savings bonds. They started buying $10,000 savings bonds. When you reach old age and retirement, you have to think about long-term care, going to a nursing home, and this is a important savings vehicle for you to fund those years uh, if you need it. If there was one piece of advice or one key takeaway here that you'd want federal employees to know, what would that be? I want them to know that they have to think about saving. It's not something that people think about when they start their position, but you have to think about your retirement. You have to think about savings. And I'll give you a perfect example. Say you're a federal employee and you've been in 10 years now as a federal employee and you're subject to a furlough. Okay. I went through a furlough for 30 days, 35 days was the longest furlough. I believe it was in 2018, 2019. And I had emergency savings to carry me through that furlough. 
if you do not have an emergency savings account, how are you going to pay your rent, your food bill, all these necessary bills that come in during a furlough? The savings bond would be your savior to start cashing in savings bonds to pay your rent, to pay your food bill. It's not just for retirement. It's a emergency tax-deferred savings. And this is very important. Yes, federal employees have to save in their TSP. It's, it's vital. It's so important. Yes, you have to have money in your bank account to pay your daily bills. But what happens if there's an unforeseen expense? And the United States savings bonds can provide that safety net for employees. Young federal employees, mid-year federal employees try to start saving. Abe Grungold, retired federal manager and financial counselor, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Department of Homeland Security's new system for recruiting cyber talent has been slow to get off the ground. But it's starting to gain traction this year. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is using it more and more. And one other DHS component is set to join CISA. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, let's start with what the basics are of this hiring program. And it sounds like it involves hiring authorities. That's right. It's called the Cyber Talent Management System. It was launched by DHS back in 2021. Essentially, it is a system that is exempt from many of the federal government's traditional hiring, classification, and compensation practices. Hires under the system, people who are hired under the system, can make a salary as high as the vice president's in some cases. But the system has been slow to gain traction. DHS had a goal of filling 150 positions when it first launched the system back in 2021 within its first year. CISA has only hired about 80 people now that we're about a year and a half in using the cyber talent management system. So it's gotten off to a slow start, but it is ramping up. 80 people is more than the last update we got, which was only about two people last spring. So they've made some traction here the last year. How do they plan to ramp it up even more then? Well, CISA Director Jen Easterly testified before the House Homeland Security Committee last week, and she said that CISA is just hiring a lot of people in general. Uh, They hired 516 people last year. And they plan to hire even more here in 2023. The majority of those hires are still coming under the Title V traditional personnel system. But Easterly says they want to use CTMS more aggressively this year. Actually implementing it has been something that's been a real project that we've continuously had to look at how it's working and ensure it truly streamlines our ability to bring on more talent. We continue to use our Title V authorities, uh, our normal authorities, to bring on talent. We are hoping to use CTMS more aggressively this year. And again, that's CISA Director Jen Easterly. She actually also she also mentioned that one person they've hired through CTMS recently is going to lead a new counter China office at CISA. And, you know, CISA is an agency that's growing pretty quickly. They're standing up a lot of these new offices. They're going to be looking for some talented people from the private sector to come in and lead those offices. So CTMS could be a solution there. All right. That's CISA. What about the rest of DHS? You said that uh, some other ones might be looking at this and saying, hmm, let's get into the pond here, too. That's right. The Federal Emergency Management Agency was recently granted the authority to start using CTMS. Previously, it had only been CISA. 
and the DHS Office of the Chief Information Officer. So now it's moving more broadly to the other components at DHS. FEMA is really considering how it can offer higher salaries to retain its existing cyber workforce as well. FEMA CIO Charles Armstrong recently spoke at an AFSIA Bethesda breakfast about the CTMS process. So we're taking advantage of uh, new things like the cyber talent management system. It's a rigorous process. It's not quite as easy as just hiring a regular employee. There's a lot of deep dive into what their skill sets are, lots of interviews. So it's much more rigorous, but the idea is that you get a higher talent quality of employee. And what has been the reaction to the fact that it is still relatively slow? I've heard this from other federal managers that a lot of the hiring authorities for procurement or cybersecurity, this is busting out all over government, but it can still take six months to get someone actually on board. So what are you hearing about that, Justin? Yeah, lawmakers are in the phase of asking questions about why this is taking so long. Andrew Garbarino, the Republican from New York, who is the chairman of the House Homeland Security Cybersecurity Subcommittee, said it's been, quote unquote, painfully slow in terms of the rollout of CTMS so far. And this comes as the federal government is just struggling to hire and retain cyber talent in general. Officials have acknowledged that there are vacancies, there are gaps. They've looked to CTMS to help fill those. But as Charlie Armstrong, the FEMA CIO uh, we just heard from mentioned, it's still a pretty rigorous process too. You've got to do a lot of interviews and ask a lot of questions of these folks to make sure that they weren't getting into the CTMS in the first place. So that's kind of where it's at right now. Plus, they have to have security clearance, and they can't be overly eager to hire just anybody because look what happened to the National Guard, the Air National Guard recently. Someone trusted, knew, young, turned out to be a horrible person and gave away, you know, the secrets we're all, the whole nation is now struggling to live with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mentioned how CTMS allows DHS to do kind of an end around on, on some of the hiring practices, some of the Title V competitive hiring practices. But of course, that does not include the security clearance process, the vetting process to make someone is suitable for a federal government trusted position. So you can't get around that process, uh, no matter what hiring authority you're using for these sensitive positions. And this is a Homeland Security departmental program. So is this going to maybe be a model for the government's general cyber plans, or is it not showing all that much promise yet. That remains to be seen. There's a couple bigger picture items that are moving above this at the same time. First is that there is a new government-wide pay model that the Office of Personnel Management has approved, a special salary rate specifically for federal IT and cybersecurity employees that will allow agencies across government, not just DHS, to pay those positions a little bit more money. So that could be seen as potentially a a competing program with CTMS. And then the Office of the National Cyber Director is working on a national cyber workforce strategy right now on the heels of the national cyber strategy that was just released. That workforce strategy is expected to be out later this fall. That could answer some more questions about how federal agencies should be approaching the cyber workforce going forward. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman. 